0: Welcome to the Stone Choir Podcast. I am Corey J. Mahler.
1: And I'm Woe. So today we're going to be talking about Christian nationalism. Uh, This is a subject that has been uh, hot and heavy in the news very recently. Uh, It has been, a number of books have been published. There's a lot of chatter online about it. It's a subject that you and I, Corey, have been talking about for a number of years. It's something we've both written about uh, to some extent in the past, and it's frankly, we know more about it than a lot of people, just because we've been thinking about it for a long time. Uh, and so this is well-trodden ground for us. We're not going to—this will be more of a, a conversational episode, hopefully, than the last couple, just because we, we can We can freewheel this and we're going to do a good job because this is our home turf. Um, and the reason is because it is so vitally important to recognize that a Christian nation is what God desires christian nationalism is what god expects from us and we're going to talk uh, at some length uh, initially about the definitions of both nation as in nationalism and then christian uh because those are the reflections of what's commonly called the two kingdoms in theology the kingdom of the left hand of god and the kingdom of the right hand of god with the left hand being political and the right hand being spiritual or soteriological, basically church and state, or state and church. The reason that this is something that... There, there are a number of historical reasons why why people sort of go off the rails when they tackle these things, but first we're going to talk about why the words themselves, particularly the word nation and nationalist, have been so profoundly subverted. Uh, as we go on in this series... Listeners will will recognize that we are frequently spending a lot of time defining terms, and I hope that that never comes across as gimmicky. Uh, it's not something that we're just doing to to be spurgy or to kind of wheedle and, and make bizarre points. The reason for discussing the the etymology and the origins of words is specifically because so many words have been intentionally subverted. By those who seek the destruction of godly things. Uh, This was one of the premises of 1984, was that when the language itself is captured, it's possible to render certain thoughts literally unthinkable, as in the human mind can no longer process a thought contrary to the desired dogma. And they do that by redefining words until there's no word for the thing that you're trying to say anymore. Because if you can't, if you don't have a word for it, and you can't say it, you can't think it, and it's it's a weapon. It's it's something that's weaponized, and it's being done deliberately in certain words and language. And nation and nationalism are a prime example. So I would, for anyone listening to episode three, this episode, I would first recommend you go back to episode two and spend about the first fifteen minutes or so listening to uh, Corey's monologue talking about genealogy in scripture and how God uses genealogy of man begetting man throughout time in particular places to God's ends. Uh, It's worth noting that when Adam emerged from the garden, he was a father, or he was a husband. He soon became a father. He was also king. He was the king of the world, despite having been, you know, demoted from from his perfection through his through his sin, he remained king. And when he had children, he was their father, he was also their king. He was also their priest. And he was he was a religious leader as he was of Eve. The reason that God repudiated his actions in the garden was that he listened to his wife instead of controlling her sin her inclination to listen to the serpent if adam had faithfully upheld his role as husband and as priest that error would have been set right and we don't know how human history would have played out the same circumstances were repeated when noah stepped off the ark he was father he was husband he was king and he was priest and it is only as the expansion of those families occurred again, that the role of priest and king became separated. And that's, we're not suggesting that that's a bad thing. It is perfectly godly for the political to have its sphere and the religious, the Christian, to have its sphere. But to say that the Christian sphere is separate from the political sphere is to fundamentally misunderstand what it is to be Christian. So that'll be the, the second part of this podcast. So we're going to begin with nation. Uh, nation is a word that came into the English language around the 1300s from French. Uh, the, the French word, which I'm not going to pronounce because I'll butcher it, but the definition is the same as it is for us. A race of people, a large group of people with common ancestry and language uh, from the old French for birth, rank, descendants. And if you trace that back even further, it goes through Old Latin and it ends up in the Proto-Indo-European root gene, which means give birth and beget. I think it was in the first episode we talked about that as well, that, or maybe the second is the episode, we're going to talk about this over and over again because it's so fundamental. The The genes, the the natal nature of begetting of people It's how God operates in creation. It's one of the things that separates mankind today from mankind in heaven. In heaven, we will be like the angels and that there won't be any more reproduction. All of the names that are in the book of life will be born in a fallen world. There won't be any more people coming after Judgment Day. The creating aspect of God's history will come to an end with Judgment Day. No more giving birth, no more begetting. The genealogy, the lines, the beginning will all be locked in. But for this time, for our lives, all that we know, we don't know before the fall and we don't know Judgment Day or after it. We know that right now, this is how God operates. So the reason I'm pointing first to to the definition of nation is to make clear that it is explicitly racial. And that's a vital point because today, nation and country are used as synonyms. To say that something is a country or it's a nation, people virtually always mean the same thing. Um, You say the United States is a country. You say it's a nation. No one's going to think you're talking about two different things. When the United States was founded, when the colonies were founded, and then the United States was formed from that, it was a nation. Uh, This was New England. New England. It was founded over 400 years ago by people coming from England to New England. They were not immigrants. They, they didn't leave one place and go to another place that was different. They went to a new place that was empty, and they recreated as best they could from whence they came. They recreated England. Now, not as a perfect copy, because that wasn't their desire, frankly. <laughs> I... Three quarters of my ancestors were here by about 1650, because they were so sick of what the English were doing nearly 400 years ago. So while they brought the language and they brought a subset of some of the religion, they brought cultural mores, they were also seeking to do their own thing. But it was not in rebellion. It was simply, let's go live in peace among ourselves and continue to be English in a manner that doesn't violate our consciences.
0: And of course, that was the, the case for all of the European people groups who came over here. You had the Spanish who set up colonies and attempted to remain Spanish to a different degree from the English, perhaps. And then you had, of course, the original name of New York, New Amsterdam. They, they were setting up extensions of their nation. They were not creating some new experiment to mix everyone together and create a new nation or realistically a new Babel.
1: Exactly. And it was the case in Canada was mostly French. Uh, Louisiana and North was mostly French. And and some of those marks even exist to this day. And when people come to a new place, there will naturally be some degree of intermixing, particularly when you have so much in common. Uh, 20 years ago, if an American went to most Western European countries, apart from the language difference, most of it would feel very similar. Uh, the customs vary, but they're not completely alien customs. They're just variations on themes that are familiar to us because we have that shared culture, which is a part of our, our shared ancestry. They're they're inextricable. And as we as we look at what nation means, you know, you had mentioned the the intermingling. When we skip forward 150 years from the founding of the colonies to when the United States, uh, rebelled against England and became its own political entity. Uh, I want to point to the preamble to the constitution, which used to be memorized in school. I don't, it probably isn't anymore, but it reads, we, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution of the United States of America. Now, the, reason, the, the word that I want to highlight there is ourselves and our posterity. When they said that, they meant it. When we hear it, we don't hear anything. Posterity is really kind of an archaic term that's not used anymore. So I want to take a look at what where that word came from, what it meant when they wrote it. Uh, For the discussions I'm using, and we'll put the link in the show notes, there are two websites that I recommend everyone look at. Whenever you want to have any conversation about what a word means, go to two places. Go to edymonline.com. That's E-T-Y-M as as in etymology. Uh, It will give details going back to where the word first entered English, and then its origins in previous predecessor languages. Uh, The other website that is invaluable for any of these discussions uh, is Webster's Dictionary, 1828.com. It's a full copy of the original Webster's Dictionary as it was published nearly 200 years ago. The reason this is important is that, as I said, these words are under attack by those who are trying to change the very fabric of existence for us. And they do that by making us unable to discuss certain certain things by removing the words or redefining the words that we would use for those discussions. So when you look at what those words meant 200 years ago, it gives an indication, you know, and when we're talking about the original American context, what did those guys mean? But it's also valuable just because it well predates almost all the subversion that has occurred in language, especially in I mean, dictionaries are changing every year at this point. You can go back five years and you'll find a dictionary that doesn't say what it does today, and it's contrary to what it says today because they're being so aggressive about destroying these terms. Now, 1828 was still under the the thrall of the Enlightenment, but beyond the Enlightenment, there was not a lot of subversion present in it. So we're going to look at the definition for posterity from the preamble comes from latin it means descendants children children's children etc indefinitely the race that proceeds from a progenitor the whole human race are the posterity of adam now that's in the constitution that it's racial that's not you and i being racist saying we hate people and we want to exclude them we're simply saying when the people who founded this country did so They understood that it was explicitly racial. I just want to read briefly the race, part of the definition for race, also from the 1620 or 1820 Webster. The lineage of a family or continued series of descendants from a parent who is called the stock. A race is a series of descendants indefinitely. They're synonyms, they mean exactly the same thing. Posterity and race are interchangeable, unlike country and nation. So the reason for pointing to this first is that when we look at the United States in 1791, it was both a country, a new-formed country, and it was a nation. It was a pre-existing nation because those roots were genetic roots from their fathers going back six generations. This is an important point because by calling it racial it is implicitly excluding some groups. It's excluding Indians who had lived here beforehand and were by and large pushed aside or God killed them with plague. There's also the Africans who were enslaved by other Africans, sold to Jewish slave traders, put on Jewish-owned slave ships, brought primarily to southern colonies where they were sold almost exclusively to Jewish plantation owners, where they were kept as slaves and used as labor, sometimes under brutal conditions. When those men were emancipated from their slavery in 1865, they did not automatically become citizens of the United States because it was still understood that although they were now legally emancipated, they were not posterity. They were not the American posterity. They were unjustly brought here from Africa, and equally importantly, they were still African. Regardless of what language they spoke, they were Africans in America. And when you and I discuss these subjects, I never want anyone to hear that and think that we're being insulting or derogatory. To say that someone is African, I don't think that's an insult. I think that if you're African, you should be proud of your African heritage, whatever it is. Find the best parts of whatever you came from and be proud of that. You know what? That's obedience to the fourth commandment. To honor your father and mother is not limited with your immediate parents. It goes back in time. And where your ancestors are, do better. Where they were wrong, be right. But be proud of whatever good they did. So when I say you're not American, you're African, it's not hateful. It's simply precise. And it's precise in a way that has been destroyed by taking the word nation and turning it into a synonym for country. And there are a lot of people listening right now that probably hate hearing that. They probably think that's that's nonsense. That's completely false. I will prove to you right now that you actually believe this. And it's in the Bible. When the Hebrews moved into Egypt and over the period of 400 years became slaves to the Egyptians— and grew to the point that there were more Hebrews than there were Egyptians, or they were overwhelming them, they never stopped being Hebrew. They didn't become Egyptian. Even after 400 years in that country, they still had their own language. They still had their own race. They weren't intermixing with the Egyptians, by and large. They still had their own culture. They saw their own norms and mores. They were still Hebrew. It didn't matter where they live. And... That wasn't, yes, it was the case that God was preserving them as a vessel for the promise of the Messiah, but that would have been the case even if God didn't care about the Hebrews for that purpose. Even if they had not been shuttled about and, and, and bobbed around in the ocean of history as part of God's plan, they would still have been Hebrew. Just going somewhere else doesn't change your nature. If there's a tiger in a zoo in Des Moines it's not an Iowa tiger it's a bengal tiger it's a tiger on the wrong continent now someone will say well you're a white guy you don't belong here either i will tell you this my ancestors have been here 400 years i don't the the only ancestors of mine who came through immigration came from germany in 1870 all the rest were here before it was a country now Yes, they came from England to New England, not as immigrants, but as people who built this country from nothing. There's another illustration that that I use often to demonstrate that the idea that someone moving to another place doesn't mean that they are never native. Look at New Zealand. New Zealand today has the the descendants of the English uh, conquerors. And you have the Maori, who were called the natives of New Zealand. When the English showed up in the, I think, the 1600s, um, the Maori lived there. And so we say, well, automatically, those are the natives. The Maori got there were between about 1300 and 1350. So they'd only been there about 300 years when the English showed up. They all came from somewhere else. And they moved to a place that they took over, they made it theirs, and then someone else else showed up, moved in, took it over, made it theirs. Are the Maori native to New Zealand? Sure. Are the European settlers who have lived there 400 years native to New Zealand? Yes. I am a native of North America, and if you say that I'm not, after 400 years, you must necessarily say that the Maori are not natives of New Zealand, Now, the difference between me and my ancestors moving to North America and the Hebrews living in Egypt is that that was never their country. God didn't give it into their hands. God gave this country into my ancestors' hands and probably into many of your ancestors' hands. When the white man showed up, almost all the natives were killed by disease and today, because we have germ theory, we're like, oh, well, that was just totally random. And, you know, maybe even in some cases, the Europeans tried to kill them with with germs. They had no idea. They didn't know. That was a plague. Plagues come from God. That was God's will that those European settlers not have to deal with millions and millions of Indians who were trying to kill them. I have numerous ancestors who fought and in some cases were killed by Indians in the first In the first half of the 16th, 17th century, because they live next door. And it wasn't that they were in open combat. It was just that the Indians wanted them gone. And fine, that's, I don't fault the Indians for trying to kill them, but my people won and we took this land. And I'm not ashamed of that because it occurred by God's grace. And that is how the United, that's how the colonies became nations. Which formed the United States. And over time, it became an empire. It became the sort of multi ethnic empire with different people coming from different places, not losing their distinct properties. Because if it's a racial distinction, you don't lose it. I don't stop being European just because I live in the United States. If I colonize Mars, I'm a European on Mars. I'm not a Martian. If my kids are born on Mars, They're not Martians. They're Europeans born on a Martian colony of Europe. That's simply how God propagates the genealogies of his people throughout time. And it hasn't changed in the last century just because we think we're clever and we have new, more enlightened ways of talking about these things.
0: And when it comes to the idea of someone being, you know, X because he was born in X country, Ultimately, you can trace that back and it's clearly ridiculous because if we're all X because we are originally from or born in X and it only belongs to the people who are natives well, then we're all natives of Ararat and none of us own anything else because, well, that's ultimately the place we're all originated from because, of course, that is where the Ark landed and so the idea that the the native population can't change is... It's a really mercenary idea if you actually look at the genesis of the idea to go back to the idea that the source of things matters, because how is it actually employed? It's employed purely as an argument against colonization and modern conquering of heathen nations. It's never used historically to argue that historical conquest should not have happened. It's not used to restore it. There's not an irredentist argument with regard to older areas that were conquered, but it's just the European colonization. Because what is the ultimate genesis of that argument? Well, it's Satan, because Satan hated colonization, because colonization was European Christians taking Christianity to other parts of the world And driving out Satan and the pagans. Because that is how God works. God drives out and destroys faithless nations. And He uses sometimes faithful nations to do it, sometimes faithless nations. Sometimes God punishes one faithless nation with another. That is how God wishes to work, and He can do that if He wants to do that. But in the case of colonization, it was European Christians, faithful Christians. Driving out evil
1: and those European Christians became your Euro- became Christian in exactly the same way it was it was not that evangelists went to every single European individually and said, "Hey, let me sh- share the gospel with you and let me baptize you." It was the kings who ultimately converted, and when yes. the king converted, his nation converted i uh, I'm actually descended from the woman who is directly responsible for all of us being Christian. Um, I was reading last night about uh, Clotilda yeah. and her husband Clovis. Clothar or Clovis, yeah. And she was Christian. She basically bullied her husband, King Clovis the first or second, uh, first, into becoming Christian, uh, and that was the genesis of what Wikipedia calls Nicene Christianity in Europe. Uh, if you look at a map of quote unquote Christianity in Europe prior to about 600 AD the only actual Christians were in the east it was all arians in the west now yes. arianism is fundamentally not christian it sounds mostly christian and they did speak the word the word of god was spoken among them so surely some of them were christian but the arian confession itself is explicitly not christian because it denies that Jesus is fully God. So Clotilda, her convincing Clovis to become Christian, him building a cathedral in the center of his seat of power and his influence over the Franks to become Nicene Christians as opposed to Arian not Christians was the entire reason that Christianity proper spread in all of Europe. It's the reason that we're Christian today. We may well be Aryans and not be Christian at all, if not for that, if not for a king converting. And if you look back in in Scripture, it's completely normal for there not to be a separation between the religion of a nation, the king of a nation, and its people. And this is even reflected in the fact that so many especially ancient pagan nations, the king was treated as a god. Now, while this was, obviously, it was idolatry, but in a sense, it was actually an accurate reflection of the godly form. Not that the king is God, but that the king is the representative of God in that place. And the fact that the pagan nations said, you know what? There's no god above our king. Our king is the god of all of us. That was a year, usurpation going up, but from the king on down, it wasn't anything more than a misdirection because the king is the God's representative over his people for their benefit, and that is the left-hand kingdom. And so the the notion that there would be a distinction between what the king believes and what the people believe doesn't make any more sense than if it happens in a household with a, a father who's faithful and a a wife and mother and children who are unfaithful, it should not happen.
0: And we have an example of that closer to our time. We had the whole reason we're called Protestants is because the emperor went back on the promise to allow individual princes to determine which version of Christianity would be practiced within their realms, whether they would be Lutheran or they would be papist. And of course, the emperor went back on that because his advisors changed, basically, and the influences on him changed. But we protested that, and that was natural because the prince, the head, the king within that region, determined what his subjects believed, because that is the natural course of things. Because as you mentioned, the father is the head of the family. The father makes the decisions. Well, the king is the head of the nation, and so the king makes the decisions. And so, yes, most of Europe was converted because a few key people were converted. Kings, advisors, whoever it happened to be, they converted those who were in a position of headship, and that affected a conversion of the people as a whole. And that is what it means for a nation to be Christian. Yep.
1: And right now, there are a lot of people in the audience probably howling at the premise because... There were so many abuses in history where this was done incorrectly and that's absolutely the case and that's where the two kingdoms distinction is useful when clovis became christian he built a cathedral but it was a bishop who ran the cathedral was a bishop who taught the people clovis said i'm christian strongly suggested his people should be christian but he was not directly over the church What went wrong in Roman Catholicism is not that they spread Christianity, but that they became political, which is not what we are advocating, and that is not what Christian nationalism is. Christian nationalism is not the notion that the church becomes a political force unto itself. The church is responsible for for soteriology. It is responsible for the salvation of souls and for the preservation of doctrine, and for the proper use of the word and sacrament among the people. That's not the realm of the government. That should not happen, that the government is dictating which sacraments are practiced or how. We don't believe that, and it's not necessarily a part of Christian nationalism to suggest that. So when someone says, oh, well, you just, you're going to end up with Baptists running everything, I don't care. Because you know what? Baptists don't want babies to be murdered. Baptists don't want their children to have their genitals chopped off. Baptists don't want Muslims raping their daughters, just like I don't. Baptists are not going to be in charge of the sacraments if this were a Christian nation again. They can still be Baptist, and we can still be Lutheran. But what will stop is the evils that have befell all of us by ceasing to be overtly Christian, which is fundamentally the purpose of Christian nationalism, it's not necessarily to say, "Well, okay, this is the cor- this is the correct denomination. Everyone's got to be this denomination." For a Christian to be a participate a participant in a nation politically, is to bring how his conscience is informed by God through Scripture to his other duties, to his other vocations as a husband, as a father, as a neighbor, uh, perhaps as as a mayor or as a sheriff, if he knows that God doesn't want people to be murdered for things to be stolen, for people to be harmed, that's going to inform his conduct in his role in preserving earthly order.
0: Of course, we should be careful to distinguish Mm -hmm. that when it comes to papists, they do exactly want to return to Roman hegemony. So in the case of those who are Roman Catholic, Catholic in quotes, of course, they do want the conflation of the two kingdoms. They don't want any differentiation because they see the king as inferior to the Pope as opposed to being Christ's left hand and the leader of the church being his right hand or the leadership, whatever it happens to be the organization in the right hand kingdom, because that's part of what we tend to drop when we're speaking about these concepts these days is we don't say the left hand of Christ, which is what the left hand kingdom is. We use that shorthand, but we're assuming that people understand something that people no longer understand. It is the left hand of Christ and the right hand of Christ. These both belong to God. We're not talking about two separate, entirely distinct things. We are talking about how God interacts with the world in two distinct ways.
1: And when we advocate Christian nationalism, we are saying that the state should uphold Christian values. Now, that's distinct from Christian doctrine, and this shouldn't be complicated for people, but somehow it is. Yes, there are historical abuses. Yes, there are some, like the Papists, who would seek to restore political hegemony over countries. Not going to happen. That's the, the fact that someone might do something bad with something good is not an argument against the good thing. It, and this shouldn't be difficult for Christians to understand. When we're talking about Christians ensuring that their own nation— which should be under God properly, the triune God, not the deist God that this country evolved into upholding from the top down. Incidentally, when, when the, when all the deists overthrew the articles of the confederation and basically came up with a a new government in secret at the constitutional convention, they were putatively the representatives of the people, but by and large, they didn't represent the people. They represented landed interests, they represented traders and the wealthy. And many of them were not Christians. Many were, but there were many non Christians participating. And some of them did terrible things, like Thomas Jefferson, as a uh-huh. direct result of their not being Christian. So, but because they won politically, they wrote the history. And so now everyone thinks that all these guys are heroes. And because they were at the top and because they won, deism spread the the when you look at 18th century america christianity began to die in large part now it, it mutated as it died you had an explosion of cults you had an explosion of uh, you know the the transcendentalists and other things where people just sort of wandered off into nature and, and did bizarre things that tried to find god outside of scripture that was a result of their leaders not being christian and taking the the country in a direction and the nation in a direction that was not Christian. And the subsequent fruits of those decisions are, are still with us to this day. I think when the, you know, the second part of, of the conversation we wanted to have today is what is a Christian? And that's, we've been kind of answering it all along, but there's this, this goofy stereotypical behavior that I see emerging even among people who are good Christians. They intend to be faithful. They're trying not to cross lines that they believe are present, but they do so by saying, in effect, I can only be Christian in church stuff, and I don't want to impose on anyone else the rest of my time. And like I mentioned last week, you got an hour in church, you know, maybe two or three hours with Sunday school, and then the other 160 odd hours, you're off on your own. How many of those hours are you a Christian? Is it when you're in church or is it all the time? Now, the what is a Christian question is one that makes a lot of Protestants uncomfortable because Protestant doctrine, the solas, have basically been collapsed into, I love Jesus, I'm going to heaven, everything else is going to be fine because he paid for my sins, it's all okay. It's it's happy, clappy, boyfriend, Jesus crap that while in isolation those individual statements may be true— if that becomes your ethos, you're toast. I th- there's there's something that I've, I've, I think I recommend in the first episode, and I'm going to say it over and over again because I think it's really vital, right? Vital. Go to ESV.org and click on the little gear. Uncheck all the options. Turn off the footnotes and the cross references. Turn off the headings. Turn off the verses, and turn on red lettering for Jesus, which is going to make some of the Lutherans in the audience freak out because there are people who say that you can ignore the Bible unless it's in red. Absolutely not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is do that and then read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, just reading the, the words in red. Don't read anything else, just read the words in red. That is not to say that the rest is not equally important. It's not to say that the rest is not also the inspired Word of God. That's not my point. My point is this, if you read only Jesus preaching, it's almost all law. There is gospel there, but it's thin. And there are often times where he lays it on hard and he ends hard. When, some, when he performs a miracle for someone, he says, go and sin no more. Now, was Jesus stupid? Did he set that person up or did he think that they would actually be able to not sin anymore? Or did Jesus tell him what his will, what God's will is for each of us, to go and sin no more? That is the Christian life. And yes, we fail. And yes, Jesus paid on the cross for the fact that we would and will continue to fail. That doesn't mean that we don't try. And the sanctified Christian life is about living more and more in God every day, about spending time in God's Scripture, about contemplating his wisdom— and then about living all 168 hours of our week in a manner that is consistent with God's will and pleasing to Him. And when these guys only want to talk about the gospel, quote-unquote, and Christ's sacrifice, those are incredibly important things, but that's not the entire Christian life. The Christian life begins at baptism and continues until you die. And most of your days, most of your hours, most of your minutes are not spent reading the Word or taking communion or hearing preaching. And that's okay. That's God gave us other things to do, but they should be done in a manner that is pleasing to Him. The Christian life is obedience to God, and that means that the left-hand kingdom, where there is what we call political activity, must necessarily be... In obedience to God every bit as much as what goes on in church. Just as much as we care about a faithful application of sacramental doctrine, we should care about the proper exercise of the law. And to fail to do that is to fail to be a good Christian, and to be indifferent to that is to risk ceasing to be a Christian altogether.
0: Well, we know what happens when Christians are indifferent to the left-hand kingdom. Satan takes over, because Satan is not indifferent to the left-hand kingdom. And so if Christians are indifferent and do not involve themselves in the left-hand kingdom and do not behave as faithful Christians in the left-hand kingdom, the left-hand kingdom will be ruled by pagans, will be ruled by Satan. And so there are only two choices. This is not something on which you can be indifferent, because if you're indifferent, you're just condemning your grandchildren, great-grandchildren, whatever generation it happens to be, you are condemning them to live in a pagan nation instead of a Christian nation. This isn't an option where we have, you know, Christianity on one side, Satanism and atheism on the other side, and some sort of neutrality in the middle. This is black and white. You're either a Christian nation or you are an anti-Christian nation. Yes, there are different degrees of being one or the other. You can be more or less Christian and you can be more or less atheist or Satanist, but you can't be neutral. There is no neutrality. There's no middle, there's no third way when it comes to this question. And you mentioned about the the rise of deism in the U.S. And really, the, the modern Christian, many of the churches anyway, are basically a half step above morally therapeutic deism or moralistic therapeutic deism. It's just, it's that with Jesus slathered on top of it a little bit, just a thin layer, a little bit of Jesus butter on top there. It's not really Christianity anymore. It's just, it's that one hour, the 90 minutes, whatever it happens to be on Sunday. And then I live the rest of my life as if I'm, you know, just another member of this society and I do whatever society tells me to do or not to do. And so we I have Jesus football. in it, yeah, exactly. I, Well, yes, football is actually a great example, because how many people spend their 60 minutes, their 90 minutes, maybe they go to Bible study, maybe they spend two hours, whatever it happens to be. They spend that little bit of time for Jesus on Sunday, and then they go home and spend four, five, six, I don't know how many hours on football or basketball or baseball or whatever it happens to be. And then they spend so much of their time thinking about and posting about and arguing over that well, what's really important in their life? I'm not saying you can't have hobbies, because of course you can have a hobby. You can have a hobby that absorbs a ton of your time even, as long as it doesn't become more important to you than the things that are actually important. And for a lot of people, it seems like sports have become more important than God, because you'll have even pastors who spend their Sundays posting about sports. Why on earth are you doing that? This is supposed to be the day that everyone inherently knows is dedicated to the Lord. Maybe say something about the Lord on that day, particularly if it is your vocation to do so. If you spend all of your time posting about sports, the people who are looking at that, who are watching you, are going to think that, well, maybe God isn't so important because he's posting about this particular sports team he likes a lot more than God. And so it matters what we do, how much time we spend on it, how important we make it seem in our life because often how important we make it seem is merely a reflection of how important it actually is. And so our witness to the world is in part how we live our lives. Are you a Christian when you're in the left-hand kingdom? Are you a Christian when you're not in the sanctuary? You should be.
1: In sports, I, I specifically mentioned professional sports because that is where the subversion is occurring culturally. It is not simply that these professional sports were erected on Sundays, Sunday mornings, on weekends to consume people's money and their time and their passion. And we're not, we're not making the argument against spending your time poorly versus spending your time well. We're making the point that the NFL is evil. The NFL has done tremendously evil things. They have promoted tremendously evil things. They do it every Sunday. It is one of the key things that they do. It is one of their purposes is not to sell advertising, not to throw the pigskin around. It is to promote societal change along avenues that are contrary to Christian doctrine. And the fact that so many pastors and other Christians are either blind or indifferent to it is terrifying if you are living a sanctified life if you are spending your time consuming godly things when you're exposed to something that is ungodly that is is not wholesome it's physically repellent it's disgusting you you, you physically revolt i i spent years being large like, like being completely indifferent to most of these subjects. I was a Christian, but I didn't really care. Like, I was a Christian on Sunday and the rest of the time, whatever. Like, it's just—I knew I was Christian, so it was sorted. I was a Lutheran. I definitely was confident in my baptism, so pretty much everything else was taken care of. In the last couple of years, as I started to spend more time in the Word and less time-consuming garbage, when I would be then exposed to things I used to love, to songs and to shows— that I used to just... I, I ate them up. It was it was part of who I was. There are many cases where I had a... I, to, I now have a visceral repulsion to those things. And it's not rooted in some sort of pietism where I'm like, oh, this is dirty. Like, I didn't re-listen to that song expecting to find something gross. I re-listened because I missed the song and found that what I used to love I now hated. Now that is something i'm not saying that everyone needs to have exactly that experience but i am saying if you never re- re- feel revolted by things that are contrary to god or if you never even if you can't even tell that things are contrary to god you have a spiritual problem you have a deep seated spiritual lack of discernment and although discernment is a gift As a matter of degree, it must be present in every Christian, or how are you going to stay Christian? If you can't tell the difference between Christian and not Christian, you're toast, you're lost. And that's the reason we keep talking about Sunday morning versus the rest of the time, is that so many of these arguments that are made mostly in good faith by Christians who rightly want to prevent problems that have occurred in the past when people have done things wrong— they end up collapsing the christian life to sunday morning and the rest is just oh remember your baptism and go do whatever i can tell you from personal experience that doesn't work it's a terrible idea it is an idea that leads people to hell and more than that like this isn't just about saved or not that's one of the things that that we we lose when we think about sanctification as We don't really think about sanctification at all. Like when when all the focus is on the sacraments and God's gifts to us, which are blessings, I'm not demeaning those in the slightest, so please don't hear that. When we eschew godly living, godly wisdom, obedience to God, we end up missing out on the good life that God wishes to give us. When you obey God, you are blessed in this life. This isn't prosperity gospel. It doesn't mean you're going to win a million dollars. It doesn't mean you're not going to lose your job. It doesn't mean you won't go hungry. It means that you will be blessed by God in ways that he sees fit. And whatever God's blessings are for you, you should be thankful for them. And as much as you know, we, we want to emphasize that not every blessing necessarily looks like a win at the time, most of them are. Most of God's blessings are just normal blessings that anyone can see. If you don't engage in contraceptive behavior, God will bless you with lots of children. It happens automatically. You get it for free. God just gives it to you. When you rebel against God, you don't get those blessings. Now, when those things are sinful, Jesus paid for them, and you will still receive salvation, but you will not have the temporal gifts that come to those who are obedient in this life.
0: When it comes to football, I'd like to make a sort of practical argument that may reach some members of the audience who would not otherwise listen to us. Now for a religious audience, undoubtedly, we're going to have some familiarity with a certain section of the IRS tax code, and that would be 501c. And the reason we'll have that is because of course 501c3 is where you get tax exemption for religious organizations. Now, what most people don't realize is that, scroll down a little bit from 501c3, 501c6, football organizations are exempt. Now, as a general rule, (laughs) our government does not do things that are for the good in the greater sense of the term good, things that are in line with Christianity, in line with Christ. And so you would of course be hard pressed to find an organization that is more evil than the IRS. There are some in our government, of course, but they're certainly at the top. So if the IRS has preferential treatment for an organization, you can generally assume that it's one of a handful of reasons why that is the case. You have either it is too much of a hassle or becomes too entangled or there's a legal restriction. That would be the case for religious organizations. Several of those arguments, we won't get into them here. You have particularly moneyed or powerful individuals who can write their own laws by proxy, of course. And then you have things that are being pushed for particularly destructive purposes to destroy society. Often, Reasons two and three tend to overlap a lot. That's a Venn diagram with a great deal of overlap in that middle section. But the reason that you have the NFL getting such preferential tax treatment and legal treatment and subsidies and everything historically is that those who are pushing for this have a very clear agenda. And that agenda runs counter to Christianity, as was mentioned. That agenda does all sorts of evil in our society and it's not just the nfl itself it's the things the nfl shows it's the things the nfl advertises it's the things that it does in its press releases and the way that it advocates for changing society and laws it's the halftime shows it's extensive this is an organization that exists to undermine what is good in our culture and many Christians are supporting it not just with their time and their attention, but also with a significant amount of money.
1: And that's not to say that it's not entertaining, too, but that's the problem. The, the entertaining aspect is the hook. The fact that you've maybe played college ball or like you've always been into it doesn't change the fact that what it is being used for today is overt evil. And when people don't recognize that, we have a real problem um, I think it's important before we wrap up to to make a positive case for what Christian nationalism would look like. What What would a Christian nation look like? And I think to start, we have to acknowledge that while on the on the right hand kingdom, there is not necessarily permission for the church to forcibly baptize or forcibly convert. Separately from that question, on the left hand politically, a Christian government has a positive obligation to God to prevent false religions from spreading in its lands. If we were a Christian nation, there would be no more mosques. There would be no more synagogues. There would be no more Jehovah's Witnesses kingdom halls. There would be no more Mormon tabernacle. These things, the Christian science reading rooms, these things which are overt religions, which are, which are antithetical to God, would not be permitted for the very same reason that when God gave the Hebrews new lands, he told them to cast down the idols of those lands, to destroy them. That wasn't political guidance. That wasn't, a, oh, that was then and this is now. If you're a faithful Christian, you have a positive to desire to destroy that which is evil, that which will cause people to go to hell. And if you're a Christian, if you actually believe what Christian doctrine teaches, then mosques and synagogues and Christian science reading rooms lead people to hell. They cause damnation by their existence, and they would not be permitted. And That is why we will continue in virtually every episode, God willing, every episode, we will attack the Enlightenment by name, and we will give details about why the Enlightenment was a perversion and an assault on God's order, because the notion of the separation of church and state, which has nothing to do even with the initial implementation of the Constitution itself, but was was memed later on, but it was an Enlightenment value, The idea that, well, the state can go in one direction and the church can go another, and they don't need to step on each other's toes. There are cases where that's true, and there are cases where that's false. And if you have a Christian nation, you should seek through the gospel to reach those who can be reached to give them the good news of God. But you're under no obligation to permit them to practice witchcraft. You have an obligation to God to kill them if they practice witchcraft. That's what God says in the Old Testament. And it's not, again, that's not a ceremonial law. If someone is going to behave in a way that is overtly satanic, the left-hand kingdom, not the right, not the church, we're not saying that the church should be exercising exercising force or violence, but the king Absolutely. He has a positive duty to do so, and to fail to do so is to fail to be a Christian kingdom or principality or whatever form of government you have. It doesn't matter. The bottom line is if it is not upholding the very most basic Christian premise that overt evil, even if it's spiritual evil, even if even if it's a Satan worshiper who's not actually openly sacrificing humans, doesn't matter. They still must be cast down. And they must be stamped out, and they cannot be permitted to exist. And if that means that you have to hunt them the way we hunt terrorists and drug dealers, they're in the same category, only worse. Because you don't need to fear the one who can destroy the body. You need to fear the one who can destroy both the body and soul forever.
0: And beyond even that, it's not just that that individual invites Condemnation upon himself, invites judgment upon himself. If you actually read the passages in the Old Testament, the existence of these individuals in a nation invites judgment on the nation. And so we have this modern conception. It comes from libertarian, from Enlightenment thought that, well, my neighbor does his thing over on his property and I do mine on my property. And as long as I'm not interfering with him, then he can keep doing it. And as long as he's not interfering with me, then he can keep doing whatever he's doing. And that's just not true. Because what my neighbor does, does directly affect me, particularly if he is worshiping a false god, because he is inviting God's judgment on himself and on me. I live next to him. I'm part of his nation. I am not immune to the consequences of my neighbor's evil. Because God doesn't just judge individuals. He judges individuals, families, and nations. And there are clear examples of this throughout Scripture. This is not something that appears in one place. It appears in many places. It is very clear that just as God blesses the faithful, he will judge and curse the faithless.
1: And the the inevitable inevitable counter-argument is, well, what if the government doesn't do it right? What if they go after the wrong people? That's why we talk about headship. That is why we talk about the fact that he who is the head faces the stricter judgment. We spent a lot of time in the first episode differentiating between those who are subordinate and those who are superior. If you're in a superior position, you have a greater duty to God. You have a greater accountability to God. So am I worried that the man who is over my nation politically may err? in discerning the proper Christian treatment of things? Of course. Just as I'm concerned that he may make errors in terms of warfare or the the economy or whatever, sound judgment and wisdom and godly living are always driven by God, and they're always in proclamation of God's will. And the fact that someone might get it wrong— isn't an argument for not trying. It's an argument for getting it right and for caring about these things to the point that we stridently pursue them in a faithful obedience to God, frankly, one that hasn't been seen for a long time. When, when Christian nationalism is condemned by pastors, I, I didn't mention this earlier, but you need to understand, for someone to condemn Christian nationalism is to convent, condemn virtually all of Christian history. Christian nationalism is why you're a Christian. I alluded to that point, but I want to make it explicit. You are a Christian because of Christian nationalism. You're a Christian because the leaders of the European kingdoms became Christians, and their people became Christians. In some cases, it was more compelled than others. But you know what? Even if you're compelled to be a Christian, even if you don't really believe it, if your kids are baptized and they're raised, they're going to believe it. God... visits his blessings on those who obey him. And that's not to suggest that, that you can have some sort of pro forma obedience without faith. I'm simply saying that when you live a godly life, it will bear godly fruit. And that happens at the national level as well.
0: Even godly heathens are blessed by God to a certain degree.
1: Absolutely. Yes. They're blessed with children. They're blessed with long life and health. And you see this all the time. And in it's one of the things that makes it difficult to, to reach them with the gospel because they're living the good life. They have everything. They're, they're at peace. They, they don't lie. They don't slander. They, they do everything pretty much by the book. And so they, they feel self-justified, and no one should ever feel self-justified. Nothing that ever comes out of either one of our mouths should ever give anyone the indication that we think that we can save ourselves by any of this. All of this is post soteriological conversation. We're talking about okay, I'm a Christian. what now? That's the reason that James wrote his his wisdom epistle. you know the James is a is a book that scares a lot of Lutherans. It used to scare me because I'd seen the the one verse that says you are not saved <laughs> the, 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 there's not the faith without works isn't a thing and If you've been inculcated in in the Lutheran doctrine and not seriously engaged with sanctified living and what it means to live a Christian life, that does sound scary. But if you read the whole epistle of James, he was writing to Christians to tell them, okay, you're Christians, what now? I am telling you what the Christian life looks like in Jerusalem or anywhere, because his words were the Holy Spirit's words and they're timeless. God gave us the epistle of James. He gave us Jesus preaching. That again, it's not mostly gospel. It's mostly here's all the stuff, stuff you should do and not do. And Jesus wasn't confused about how you were saved. He knew why he was here when he came. When he was preaching about obedience to God, he knew that the people who were hearing him would fail. He knew he was going to the cross to pay for their individual sins as well as ours. And he said it anyway. Was it futile? No, it was not futile because it is the means by which God wishes to give us His blessings. When you disobey God, how's He going to bless you? There, there are certain blessings you can receive, and those they're mentioned in Scripture. The sun shines and the rain comes, and the the food is given to the righteous and to the unrighteous alike. But when you live in God's Word and you live a sanctified life that eschews that which is evil and focuses on that which is good, including what your neighbor is doing, you will have more blessings. You might not get richer. You might still die from cancer. You're still blessed by God, even if the worst things happen to you, because you are living a life that is in conformance as much as you're able with his will. And that pleases God. We've, we've become afraid to say that obeying God pleases God, which is insane because it's all over Scripture. You can't open to a page that doesn't talk about a God-pleasing life pleasing God. We have a duty to please God, and when we talk about Christian nationalism in particular, we're saying that our government, our nation, should be ruled in a manner that is pleasing to God. And if you have a political environment that is permitting evil, is permitting idolatry, is permitting gross offences against creation itself, that is the opposite of pleasing to God, and you're not only you gonna get wrath, you're going to be judged for it, both in this life and the next. It is open sin for us to tolerate the government that we have, and we're all guilty of it. And blogging about it and complaining about it on podcasts doesn't get us off the hook. Because it's our government too, and we will pay the price for what it does from God.
0: And we are certainly paying the price with the state of our society. But to quickly address the, the argument, to be loose with the term, that always comes up that has been mentioned several times, those who say that, well, because this thing can be abused, it cannot possibly be good. Well, those who actually have and believe in the sacrament should understand that that is not the case, because we use wine in the sacrament of the table, in the Lord's Supper, and can wine be abused? Certainly. Does that mean that wine is evil? Well, Scripture is very clear that the answer is certainly no. It is not inherently evil. And to make sure we meet our Latin requirement for the episode, of course, that's just abusus usum non tollit. The abuse of a thing does not cancel or make void the use of a thing. Those are two separate considerations. Whether or not something is good is one consideration. Whether or not a particular use to which it is being put is another consideration. And so to use another illustration, there was a military commander who was being interviewed for the news because his base had had some young boys come to the base to learn various things, one of which was marksmanship, handling a rifle. And the female interviewer asked if that, of course, wasn't a, a dangerous activity. She said, well, you're equipping these young boys to be killers. And the general's response was very good. Well, ma'am, you're equipped to be a prostitute, but you're not one, are you?
1: (laughs) That's what it boils down to. It's the Christian life requires a Christian to live it. And the fact that we have so many who are afraid to even say, hey, go live a Christian life. It shows that we have ceased to be faithful Christians by, by any measure. You're not a Christian on Sunday. You're a Christian every day or you're never a Christian. If, if you can go sit in a, in a pew and take the sacrament and sing the hymns and love the liturgy and whatever performative things you do, no, no matter how much you feel them in your heart, if you then go on with the rest of your week and forget about it and think that you can engage fully in the opposite direction from God's will. And it's not even that people do that thinking, well, they don't think it's sinful, they don't even think, well, I'm going to go sin and Jesus will forgive me on Sunday. They don't think that their sin is sinful. And that's the most terrifying aspect of all of this, is when we have pastors and other Christians openly attacking Christian nationalism, which is simply obedience to God. And they, they do it with a clear conscience. That's what, that's what all these things boil down to. I mentioned last week that just because you're a Christian— and you do something doesn't sanctify what you're doing as itself Christian. You may well do it with a clean conscience, and that makes it even worse, because not only is it very convincing, but you're unrepentant when you sin. And that is why we will continuously point to Scripture and what God says, jumping over the last couple hundred years of what's come out of our church or any other church or anywhere in society. Because if something is true and it's from God— It is an eternal truth, and you don't need something that was put on a podcast last week or written in a book last year or published by a synod 50 years ago for it to be true. If it's true, you're going to find it in Scripture, and you're going to find that it's been practiced by Christians throughout time. And what we find is that Christian nationalism has been practiced by Christians throughout time until the kingdoms of Europe were overthrown and destroyed. And that began with the Enlightenment, and it began with the revolutions, and we are witnessing the culmination of it now. And as we come to the end of this episode, I want to reiterate the point that we made last week about the genealogy of ideas. This idea that Christian nationalism is evil, as I mentioned, there are dozens of podcasts devoted entirely to saying it's evil. Those people are not Christians. Those people hate God. They're the same people who want to castrate children, who want to do every manner of evil thing to creation, they also hate Christian nationalism. So if you're on the fence or if you actively despise it, it's important for you to look to your left and look to your right and see who, you, who your brothers in arms are as you go to war against Christian nationalism. Because it's not Christians. It's not the Christians of history. It is the most evil people in this day who are doing the most evil things. Those are the people who are the opponents of Christian nationalism, and they're accompanied by Christians who are do- doing it in good conscience. I, uh, there's a point that Dr. Kuntz made on the um, Brief History of Power podcast last year that astonished me, and I, it's something I, I re- reiterate frequently. When Jeffrey Dahmer was captured and arrested and charged, it was exposed that Jeffrey Dahmer was a sodomite, a kidnapper, a rapist, a murderer, a necrophile, and a cannibal. Those were the charges, and that's what was, was exposed about him. He didn't speak in his own defense to say, no, I'm not any of those things. But when it came out that when observing his victimology, there were blacks and Asians that he targeted to kidnap and rape and murder and defile and eat, The press called him a racist, and that's when Jeffrey Dahmer spoke up. He didn't care about the other things. He cared about being called a racist because being called a racist was contrary to Jeffrey Dahmer's religion. Not the religion in the sense that there was a church that was devoted to it, but in Jeffrey Dahmer's heart of hearts, the greatest sin that he could imagine anyone committing was to be a racist. And he wanted to set the record straight that I'm not a racist. Yeah, I'm a sodomite, yeah, I'm a cannibal, I'm a necrophile, I'm a murderer, I'm not a racist. Get let's get that one thing clear. That goes to the genealogy of ideas, because if you hold that racism is evil or that Christian nationalism are evil, you need to look to your left and you need to look to your right and see who it is that is in lockstep with you, and then ask yourself. If I oppose Christian nationalism on the basis of God's word, if I believe that I'm being faithful to God in opposing this thing, you must answer to your own satisfaction and to God's satisfaction, how is it that the atheist to your left and the Jew to your right, who is every bit as angry and hateful as you against Christian nationalism— How did they arrive at that conclusion? Because they don't have God. They hate God. They seek to destroy God's things, and they seek to destroy Christian nationalism. Why are you in bed with those people? How did that happen? Maybe we're completely wrong. Maybe all these evil people, they got one thing right, or two things right, since racism and Christian nationalism are all part of the same bucket. Maybe they're perfectly moral and perfectly right with God, and they get everything else wrong. But you need to ask yourself, how did that happen? Because if they didn't get it from God, they got it from somewhere else. And When you look at the genealogy of where they got those ideas, it's the furthest thing imaginable from God. and That is the same answer to where you got the idea you didn't get it from Christians, you didn't get it from Scripture, you didn't get it from God, and this is a point we're going to hammer home as often as as people will listen, because it's so easy in an evil world to not question assumptions and not question priors and just absorb whatever we're given. And someone sprinkles Jesus dust on something and says it's in the name of love and the gospel, you're you're morally obligated to do it and believe it. That's the story that we're told. That's, that's Satan's story. That's Satan's gospel to say, I'm opposed to everything that God is doing. Here, let me sprinkle some Jesus dust on it so you suckers will eat it up because I know you love that. And then you will run wild and do what I want. That's what's happening with all of these subjects. And I, I wish the, the Corey and I weren't the, the guys who are saying things that are controversial, but they shouldn't be controversial. 200 years ago, they wouldn't have been. 200 years ago, it would be unthinkable to have this conversation, because no one could conceive of a, a world where people didn't simply already understand it intrinsically. And yet today, here we are, because of generations of faithlessness, that more and more we have abandoned godly living to the point that when you say live a godly life, Christians recoil. And we need to undo yep. that.
0: No one would listen to this podcast 200 years ago, even as fiction, it would be somewhat outlandish.
1: Yeah. I mean, it, it, it literally it fits the definition of unthinkable. The the fact that you would have to debate over <laughs> where people come from or whether or not we should obey God and have Christian leaders, that's controversial in the church today. And it's not because it, they got it out of the Bible. They didn't get it out of the Bible. And so I, I just implore anyone listening, figure out where you got the ideas. Because if you didn't get them from God, You need to go find some ideas that came from God, and we're here to talk about those.
0: And if you're looking at the genealogy of ideas, a lot of times you can also look at the progeny of those ideas, because if you look at the progeny of the idea that, well, we're all one race, the human race, well, we're all one, male and female are just incidental God rolled some dice, and your soul came out as one or the other. Or maybe it's not even your soul, it's just your body. God stuck your soul in a body that happens to be male, happens to be female. Well, you start off there, and you wind up with transgenderism. You wind up with sex reassignment, so-called surgeries for children. You wind up with puberty blockers. You wind up with abortion. You wind up with all of these evils. They all flow naturally from these things that people believe and don't think are controversial or evil or wrong. And so just to close out, I'd like to give a quick little summary of a good way for people to think about Christian nationalism and what exactly it is we mean and want by it. In the right hand kingdom, our head ultimately is Christ. And so of course our head is Christian, being Christ Himself. All Christian nationalism is, is a desire to have a Christian head in the left-hand kingdom. If you're a child you want your father to be Christian. If you're a wife, you want your husband to be Christian. If you're a citizen, you want your king to be Christian. And that's what we mean by Christian nationalism.
1: Amen.